Well, I know that we have enjoyed uh, our worship together this morning on both campuses, and we've experienced a lot of joy in the things that we have been singing. But the current moment of our celebration notwithstanding, I think that all of you would agree with me that we are living in days and in a world that is woefully short on good news. Do you agree? There's a lot of bad news in the world. We live in a, in a broken world, and all of us know this. I really don't even need to detail it for you. We all know it. As an example, Tracy and I have been back in the country for seven days, and in the seven days since we landed back here, I have talked to and prayed with four different families within our church who had someone in their family pass away just in the last seven days. Now think about it. That's a lot of grief for one church family to endure in one week. And yet, it's evidence of the fact that we live in a world where death is a reality and where the news is often bad. Sometimes it's in our own experience. We endure difficulties and we receive bad news. Other times we see it in people that we love and we grieve with them. Sometimes it's just what we see on the news and this 24-hour news cycle which just pours the negative headlines, the bad news across our social media feeds and into our homes over and over and over again. The bad news pours in. As you know, we're living in a time when there's a war raging in Europe unlike anything that our world has seen since World War II. And in Ukraine, the war rages and drags on and on and on. We're living in a world where we have seen the unholy alliance develop between Russia and China and the world trembles as those two powers come together and form really a global superpower to fill a vacuum of, of leadership in the world. And we, we tremble a bit and wonder what might the world look like when those two nations are in, uh, allied together. We're living in a world where we now have been informed that Iran, the leading state sponsor of terrorism, is a matter of days away from being able to obtain the material necessary for a nuclear bomb. And we wonder, what, what will the world be like when the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world has access to nuclear weapons? We're living in a world where global markets teeter on recession, or worse, and we wonder and fear, in many cases, economic chaos or even collapse. And, and there is this oft-repeated, far too often repeated, evil and tragedy of school shootings and the killing of the innocents and these reports that come as came just a few days ago in Nashville. Now, I don't even really need to go through all of that uh, with you this morning. You know all of that is true, and it's not my intention to depress you at all. I simply want to be honest and acknowledge that in the world in which we live, there is no shortage of bad news. And it's in the context of that bad news that all of us would say, we really could use a little good news. Amen? I mean, it's, it's a good time for us to get some good news. And so I just want to welcome you. Can, can I just welcome you to the home court of good news? You've come to the home court of good news. This is the place where we traffic 
in good news. Good news is the business of the church. We are, as the body of Christ, we are the reservoir of good news in a world full of bad news. In fact, Jesus said this to us plainly in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Listen, he said, uh, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Jesus commanded the church to make certain that at every point around the globe, on every continent and in every country, up every lane and down every street and throughout every community, that we are busy proclaiming the gospel. And some of you will know this, some of you won't, but many of you know this, that the word gospel means good news. And so we could read Mark 16, 15 this way. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. That's what we're about. We're about telling you the good news. So welcome to church. I've come to give you good news today. This is my commission from the Lord. It is to proclaim good news. Now, what is the content? When Jesus says to the church, go into all the world and proclaim the good news, what is the message of the good news? What is the content of the good news? Well, I want to put a passage on the screen on both campuses for you today, and they're going to leave it up for a few minutes because we're going to talk through this, and I want you to, to learn from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15 what the good news is. Notice he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news. And he says in this verse, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also Receive. Now, now watch this. The nature of the good news is that we receive it and then we give it away. Paul says, I am simply giving to you what someone else has already given to me. He would say, if I hadn't received it, I couldn't give it. But I've received it and so I'm giving it. And in the same way, when you receive good news, you ought to give that good news away. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that, now here's the message of the good news. How that, number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the first point of good news. When Jesus said, go tell the good news, the first thing we are to tell is the good news about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now this is what we celebrated on Friday when we celebrated good news, or, or good Friday I should say. I had someone call my home on Friday and they asked this question. It's really, really good questions, true story. They said, why do we call this Good Friday? What's good about it? I mean, this is the day we remember the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. Why would we call that good? And I said to them, I, I agree with you. For Jesus, in the suffering, it was horrific. It wasn't good, but it was good and it is good in that the suffering and the death of Jesus was the fulfillment of the plan of God. It was good in that it was obedience to God, and it was good in what it has afforded for us, what is provided for us in our salvation. So he says the first point of the gospel of the good news is that Christ has died. The second point of the good news, Paul says, is that Christ was buried. He really was dead. He was buried. And then the third part of the good news, according to this passage, is that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul tells us in this passage that the death, 
the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, these three elements make up the good news that we are to proclaim. And here's another little bit of good news for you. It is that all of that message, that entire message is contained in our text today in Matthew chapter number 28. There's a sermon in Matthew 28. It's delivered by an angel. Have you ever heard an angel preach before? Don't think about me. I'm not an angel. But have you ever heard an angel? You're going to hear an angel preach today from Matthew chapter number 28. Would you look at it beginning in verse number 1? Matthew 28 verse 1 says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment as white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Now, I would love if we had the time to stop and talk about this angel. Can you imagine this mighty angel descending with such power that the earth begins to shake? His, his countenance is like lightning. You can't look at him. He's got this white raiment on. The keepers are fainting. The guards are fainting because of him. He's worthy of discussion, but we don't have time to talk about him because we have to talk about somebody more important. This angel descends, verse 5, and the angel answers and says unto the women, Fear not. For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see for yourself. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came, fell at his feet, held him by the feet, and worshiped him. Now remember, there are three elements to the gospel message, three elements to the good news the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And all three of these are included in the angel's message. Let's, let's look at his message. Write it down if you're a note taker. The first thing that the angel affirms in his preaching to these women is that Jesus was put to death on a cross. Remember, this is the first element of the gospel. Christ has died. And the angel says that Jesus was crucified. Look at verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Do not be afraid, fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus which was or who was crucified. All four of the gospel writers tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, if you read the four gospel writers, you will discover that there are specifics about the crucifixion that each of the gospel writers give us. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us things that are common to each of the Gospels. In other words, Matthew tells us some things about the crucifixion that that Mark and Luke and John tell us the exact same thing. And then Mark tells us some things that Matthew, Luke, and John say. Luke does the same, and John says some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say. So there is some information about the crucifixion specific uh, across the board. However, there is, Include, there is included in each of the Gospels 
details or nuances that are unique to that gospel writer that are not included in the other three. And so when you harmonize the gospels, when you take the four gospels and you put them together and read them as if they are one document, then this full picture begins to emerge about the suffering and the death of Jesus. For example, Matthew tells us in great detail about the mocking that Jesus endured before his crucifixion. Turn back one page to Matthew chapter number 27, where Matthew describes for us how that Jesus, following his arrest and condemnation, he was mocked by a band of soldiers. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common halls, a place called the Praetorium. They took him into the common hall, and they gathered unto him the whole band of the soldiers. Now we know that this band of Roman soldiers would have been hundreds of Roman soldiers, even as many as 600 Roman soldiers that would have participated in some form or fashion in the suffering and the mockery of Jesus. The whole band of soldiers was gathered to him. Look at verse 28. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe, like a royal robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head. Now you've all seen the images of Jesus with the crown of thorns. And typically the, the paintings show this crown of thorns to thorn twigs woven together with little rosebush kind of thorns and laying on his brow gently with a little droplet of blood perhaps running down his face. And I want you to know that's not what it was like at all. When the Bible says that they plaited together thorns to make a crown, I want you to think basket weaving. It's really what it means that they took multiple thorns and, and wove them together so that they created not a little diadem of thorns, but a hat that would have pressed down over the top of his head into his skull and then around his brow, and there would have been not a drop of blood, but great amounts of blood from this crown of thorns. Verse number 29 says that they put this crown of thorns on his head, and they then put a reed, a little a little stick, if you will, in his right hand. Now, what are they doing? They're making Jesus to be a mock king. Why? This goes all the way back to chapter 27, verse number 11, where the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to, to Pilate and said he made himself to be a king. He claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Essentially, Jesus says, yes, I am. And so the soldiers mock him for claiming to be a king. They put a royal robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They give him a scepter, a little stick, and they mock him, bowing down to him, the Bible says. Hail, king of the Jews, they say. Verse 29. Verse number 30 says that they spit upon him, and they took the reed, and they began to strike him in the head with the stick. Mark goes on to tell us details about Jesus' suffering that go beyond this mockery. Mark tells us about the scourging of Jesus. You know what scourging means. The word means to, to whip. 
But when you and I think of a whipping, we typically think of perhaps a leather strap that would come across the back like that. And so when someone would be lashed, the straps would just hit their back, opening up welts or cuts, but then it would just slide off. But here's what we know about Roman scourging. Roman scourging used an implementation of torture, which was a leather strap cut into fine strips. And embedded in each of those strips would be bits of stone and lead and glass. So that when one would be scourged, rather than just the leather coming off the back, when it would hit, because of the stone and the lead and the glass, it would grab the flesh. And then when pulled, it would do exactly what you would expect that it would do. It would tear through flesh and muscle and tendon all the way down to the bone, to the organs. And oftentimes, people who were scourged by the Romans would never even make it to crucifixion because the scourging was so severe that they would die from the scourging. Mark tells us that Jesus was scourged. Luke goes on to tell us that when Jesus was crucified that he was nailed to the cross. Spikes in each of his wrists, quite likely, then his feet nailed to the cross, and then raised up and dropped into a, a hole that was already there to hold the cross. So that hanging on that cross, having been scourged, his back now open from the scourging, his head and face bleeding from the crown, every time that Jesus would need to rise up to get a breath, he would push up, pull himself up, fill his lungs, imagine his back scraping up that timber and then back down, <sighs> breathing. Luke tells us that he was nailed to the cross not on a hill far away, but that he was nailed to a cross alongside a busy road and that people who were walking past were hurling their insults at him and mocking him as he died. John tells us that Jesus from the cross cried out, I thirst. He was crucified early in the morning, nine in the morning, he was crucified he died at three in the afternoon, and so all through that rising morning sun and that midday sun, hanging on the cross, beaten, scourged, bleeding, nailed, hanging, and he says, I thirst. And then John gives us a detail that is beautiful, that from the cross, in all of his suffering, that Jesus looks down and sees his mother. And he says from the cross to John, you take care of her. She's your mother now. You take care of her. All four of the gospel writers tell us about the final moments of Jesus, the final things that he said. They tell us that, uh, that Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, hanging on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They tell us that in the last moments of his life, one of the thieves repented of his sin and that Jesus compassionately looked to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. They tell us that Jesus cried out, 
just before his death. It is finished. And finally, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. In fact, the gospel accounts are so excruciatingly detailed in the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus that they leave literally nothing to our imagination. We know what happened to Jesus. Now it's also important to know that that this these accounts of the crucifixion in the in the gospels serve only to validate what we know to be true about the brutality of Roman crucifixion from extra-biblical, historical accounts. We know what crucifixion was like among the Romans simply from reading what historical and secular accounts say. We know that the brutality of Roman crucifixion was intended to be not just a punishment for crime, but a deterrent to future criminals. This is the reason they did not crucify on a hill far away, but right along busy thoroughfares so that every person passing would see people being crucified and they would know, you commit crime in Rome, you cross Rome, this is what will happen to you. It was intended to send that message. We also know that this is why Jesus was crucified right outside the Damascus Gate at the busiest entry point of the city of Jerusalem where crowds were passing all morning long. We know that Jesus was crucified not high up, not elevated on a cross, but low to the ground. His feet probably 12 or 18 inches off the ground so that people passing by could look in his eyes as they would hurl their mockings at him. And we also know that Roman crucifixion was so horrific that it was reserved for non-Romans. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. They wouldn't do that to their own people. And we also know that Roman crucifixion was only for criminals who had been convicted. Listen carefully. The Romans did not crucify the accused. They they only crucified those whose cases had been adjudicated and they had been found guilty of a crime. Those people would be crucified, which brings us to a problem point. If the Romans only would crucify those they knew to be guilty, then why did they crucify Jesus, whom they knew to be innocent. This is what Pilate, the Roman governor, had said of Jesus. Do you remember? He said, Matthew records this, I find no fault in him. Those are not the words of Jesus' disciples. Those are the words of the Roman governor. Pilate said of Jesus, why would we crucify him? He has done nothing wrong. He is a just man. So why do you think? If the Romans were meticulous, if they were very scrupulous in carrying out crucifixions only on guilty people, why did they crucify the man who their own governor had said was guiltless? Well, the answer to the question is found in the Bible. I want to read it to you why they crucified Jesus, an innocent man. Listen to what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6. Here's what he says. 
For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why did Christ die at the hands of the Romans? Because he was dying for the ungodly. Verse 8, God has demonstrated his love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, verse 9 says, being now justified by his blood or his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Why did the Romans crucify Jesus? Paul said they did it so that we might be brought to God. Listen to how Peter says it, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So here's the logic. Here's the logic of the gospel. Here's the logic of the good news. The Romans only crucified guilty people. But God superintended over these events so that he brought about the crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. We are guilty. Christ is guiltless. And so if the Romans crucified a guiltless man, it must be that Christ died in our place. Does that make sense to you? Here's the logic. If I'm willing to admit I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, and for honest, honestly, for most of us, that's not a problem, right? We can be honest. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners. If I can admit that I'm a sinner, and if I will confess that Jesus is sinless, then I must know that, as Peter said and Paul said, the guiltless one died for the guilty one. Here's what we would say. Here's the logic of the gospel. Jesus died for me. In fact, would you affirm that? If you believe it to be true, would you say it out loud with me, both campuses? Let's say it. Jesus died for me. One more time, like you believe it. Jesus died. And that's the good news. That's the first point of the good news. Now, the second point of the good news, remember, is that Christ was buried. Christ was crucified, and then Christ was buried. Back to Matthew chapter 28, we know that Jesus was buried in a borrowed grave. Jesus was buried in a borrowed grave. Now, you know that when we bury someone today, mostly, usually, when some pass, someone passes away today, what do we do? We dig a hole in the ground. We dig a grave. We put their body in that grave. We cover that grave back up. They, they go back to the earth. But if you had lived in Jesus' day, in the part of the world where Jesus lived, you would not have been buried that way when you had died. In fact, even today, most Jewish graves, or most graves, not just Jewish, but most graves in the Middle East are not in, in the ground. They're mostly above ground, in crypts, if you will, or tombs uh, on top of the ground. But in Jesus' day, if you had died, if you were a common person, you would have likely been buried in a cave. Caves were burial, were used as burial tombs. Maybe your family would have owned a plot of ground and on that plot of ground there would have been a cave and that cave would have been used for family burial. So if you die, here's what happens. They take your body, they put it in that cave. They leave it there for a year to 18 months. The flesh all uh, drops away and decomposes. Nothing is left but bones, a skeleton. They gather up your bones a year or so later, put those in a bone box, an ossuary, and they stick that in the side of the cave somewhere, and now the place is ready for the next person who dies to go there. That's why the Bible says he was gathered to his father's. Literally, his bones are gathered and put with his father's bones. And so if you had been a common person, you would have been buried in a cave. But caves are crude, 
And so if you were a wealthy person, you wouldn't want to use a crude cave. You might have had a sarcophagus. That would have been very special if you were really wealthy. But if you were super wealthy, you would have been buried in a rock-hewn grave. Literally a tomb chiseled out of the rock. And that is where Jesus was buried. The Bible tells us about it. Matthew 27, look at verse 57. Matthew 27 57 says, when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea, Joseph was his name, who himself was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded that the body be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. This is the way that they would bury. John tells us, by the way, that Nicodemus helped Joseph bury Jesus. Did you know that? Did y'all, do y'all remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, we know you've come from God. No man can do what you do unless he's from God. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, became a disciple. When Jesus died, Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds, John tells us. hundred pounds of oils and aloes and spices and ointments to anoint the body of Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus. They lay it on this linen cloth. They anoint the body. They wrap it and then they put it, verse, uh, chapter 28, verses uh, down through verse 60 says, they lay it in Joseph's own tomb, which he had cut or had cut out of the rock. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, the third part of the good news that we celebrate every Sunday when we gather, and particularly on Easter Sunday, is that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. Remember the good news that we're to tell the whole world? Jesus died for me and you. Jesus was buried. He was dead for three days. And on the third day, he rose again. Jesus rose on Sunday morning. Look at verse 1, Matthew 28, verse 1. When did this happen? It happened in the end of the Sabbath as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Why do we come to church on Sunday mornings every week? It's the Lord's Day. It's the day of his resurrection. Every Sunday is a celebration of his resurrection. Look at verse number five. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Here's the declaration, verse six. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see for yourself. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Now, I I know this to be true, that for many of us, for most of us in this room, when we hear that declaration, he is not here, he is risen, go tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead, most of us say, amen, we believe that. Most of us don't hear about the resurrection and go, you know, I wonder, I mean, did he really And it occurs to me that as we gather on this Easter morning, there are some of you in this room, some of you at East Campus, who are less certain of the resurrection than most of us. You might consider yourself a skeptic, a doubter. And when you hear the Bible say, he is not here, he is risen from the dead, you think, could it really happen? Could a body that has been dead for three days On its own power, suddenly the brain synapses begin to occur and the the heart suddenly begin to pump and blood flow through the veins and and those lungs go, (gasps) could that really happen? 
and you doubt it. And I want to say to you, I understand that. Because when you read the Gospels, some of Jesus' own disciples doubted it. You know the story of doubting Thomas, don't you? Thomas said, I'll never believe it unless I can touch his resurrected body. They doubted. But here's what you must hear. They ultimately were all convinced that the resurrection was true. And you must be convinced as well. If y'all are listening, both campuses, I want you to shout amen. amen. Don't miss this. You can't go to heaven if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If you reject the idea of the resurrection, heaven will never be your home. That's not what Pastor Jim says. That's what Romans chapter number 10 says. For if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we shall be saved. If you're going to heaven, you must be convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Now with that, I have to tell you, it's not my job to convince you. It's impossible for me to convince you. I I could never convince you of anything. Only the Holy Spirit can convince you of this reality. But maybe I can give you some evidences. So let me finish our time together with five quick evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. And maybe these evidences will be the building blocks for you to be able to reach that point of saying, you know what? I do believe it. Let me give them to you quickly. You ready? We're going to go through them very, very quickly. Number one, what is the first evidence of Christ's resurrection? It is the agreement of all four Gospels. Here's the point. These four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell us that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the Gospels are the primary source material for everything that we know about Jesus. If you don't believe what they say about his resurrection, then you can't believe anything else that they say about Jesus. All four Gospels agree Jesus rose from the dead. The second evidence of his resurrection is the conspiracy of the soldiers. Now you may be saying, what are you talking about? What conspiracy of the soldiers? Look at Matthew 28 and verse number 11. Now when they were going, the women were going to tell the disciples that he had risen from the dead. Some of the guard, the watch came into the city and told the chief priests all the things that were done. What did the guards who had been at the tomb tell the chief priests? You listening? They said, we were at the tomb, guarding the tomb. The earthquake happened. An angel came down. He was so bright we couldn't look at him. We passed out. He rolled the stone back. And when we woke up, Jesus was gone. That's what they told him. If you look at the next verse, these chief priests come together with the elders. They say to the, to the soldiers, here's what you're going to do. They gave them a large sum of money. They paid them off. And they said, you tell everybody that his disciples came in the night and stole his body away. You know what that's called? A conspiracy. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. That's what it is. And do you know why conspiracies exist? To cover up the truth. It is the conspiracy of the soldiers which is great evidence 
of the fact of the resurrection. Third evidence of the resurrection is the absence of a body. There is no documentation, biblical, extra-biblical, Jewish, uh, Hebrew, uh, Roman. There is no material anywhere that says that there was a body produced. And don't you know that if the Jews or the Romans had wanted to say, resurrection, no way, he didn't rise from the dead. Look, here's his decaying body. They would have done it. There was nobody ever produced. Number four, fourth evidence of the resurrection is the boldness of every single disciple. All of the disciples of Jesus believed that he had risen from the dead. They knew he had because they had seen him, and they all died saying that he had risen from the dead. And they all suffered greatly and were persecuted and died in most cases horrible deaths because of their claim of the resurrection, but they would not recant. They all died saying he's alive. And loved ones, you don't die for a lie. Number five, fifth evidence of the resurrection is the explosion of the Christian church purely on this very claim, this claim alone. That it was in that part of the world where Christ had risen that the church just erupted on the world and grew with such force and power and in such numbers that ultimately within a hundred years they begin to bring about the fall of the Roman Empire. It was in that place where they were proclaiming not Caesar is Lord but Jesus is Lord because Jesus has risen from the dead. At the end of the day, you must be convinced that this good news is in fact true. That Jesus died for you that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose from the dead to save you and take you to heaven. And if you'll believe it, if you'll trust in it, then you will be forgiven of all your sins. As Paul writes, as Peter says, you will be brought to God. You will be justified. You will be made right with God. Do you believe it? That's the question. Do you believe it? As you read through the gospel of Matthew chapter 28, you find that Some did believe it and they worshipped him and others heard it and they did everything they could to ignore it and others just couldn't get over their doubts. And so I wonder, where are you?